Hi, welcome to the Critical Concepts and Obstetrics podcast. This is Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, and today I have a guest with me, Susan Drummond. And the title of our podcast is going to be The Importance of Critical Thinking in Obstetrics. But first, let me introduce our guest, Susan Drummond. Susan is a Senior Associate in Obstetrics in the Department of OBGYN at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. She's also the Perinatal Regionalization Coordinator and works as a PRN staff nurse in labor and delivery. Susan is also an A1 EFM instructor and instructor trainer. So Susan and I have worked together for many years, and I want to thank you for coming today and talking about critical thinking in obstetrics, a topic that we often think about, but maybe we haven't talked a lot about it in in our clinical scenario. So let's start with maybe you defining what critical thinking is or what do you think about that? Sure. Thanks for having me today, Suzanne. Um, I I really am excited about this topic, and I think it's something that um, definitely will be useful to your audience. So critical thinking is the ability to think in an organized and a rational manner, um, to really understand connections between ideas or facts. It kind of helps you decide what to believe in. Um, It involves information gathering, interpreting that, analyzing, and evaluating uh, in order to have more sound reasoning. You know, sometimes we have talked about this in the past, too. Sometimes we may not see critical thinking when we're caring for patients or, you know, when we review a case and we look at it. And we may not see that the providers, and that could be either the nurses or the doctors, you know, utilizing critical thinking. So what do you think some of the pitfalls are to um, doing critical thinking and, you know, when you're practicing? So I think one is is sort of that idea of tradition, that certain things that we do have just always been done this way. For example, um, nurses training the next generation to put patients on their left side in labor, where we know that that's not really evidence-based and that, you know, right side is is beneficial too for fetal oxygenation and maternal cardiac output. Um, another could be having a bias um, toward a certain way of thinking, um, maybe based on culture, religion, the way you were raised, something like that, that prevents you from really seeing the picture more clearly. Um, Another one could be just being closed-minded and not being willing um, to listen to somebody else's point of view on how to manage a tracing or how to manage a patient in general. And then one last one that I think we all need to be reminded of is technology. We have some amazing technology that helps us with patient care today. But I think it can also be a pitfall to critical thinking because, um, for example, vital signs that auto-populate into the medical record that doesn't relieve the nurse or the physician from the responsibility of analyzing those and and recognizing when there's a problem. Um, Another could be a, a fetal monitoring system that analyzes the components of the strip and therefore the nurse or the physician feels like that piece is done. And it really requires, um, the well-trained and knowledgeable professional at the bedside to be making those decisions. That's, that's so true. And, you know, again, the great, great information. Um, now let's apply some of the critical thinking concepts and techniques to some specific uh, scenarios. So let's do something with like fetal monitoring, because I know that's a, a topic that you've taught for so long. And what are some of the scenarios in fetal monitoring that you would use critical thinking in? So one would be um, analyzing and making decisions about late decelerations in the fetal monitor tracing. Um, We all know that late decelerations are defined as 
a visually apparent gradual onset, um, meaning it takes more than 30 seconds to reach the nadir. Uh, it's associated with a contraction, and it's delayed in timing, with the nadir occurring after the peak of the contraction. And late decelerations are reflective of a transient interruption in oxygen transfer to the fetus. So we know that the fetus is experiencing a period of transient hypoxemia. And we want to uh, certainly utilize corrective measures to, to improve that situation. And, you know, they're typical uh, corrective measures that I think we all have um, been trained to utilize. And, and that would include things like position change of the mother, um, giving an IV fluid bolus, um, maybe addressing uterine activity and, and deciding to titrate oxytocin a different way. So those would be examples. Um, but which one of those to use? All of them, all the time, some? How do you make that decision? And so I think that's where critical thinking comes into play. And it would require that um, the professional be at the bedside assessing mother and baby together. For example, you see late decelerations on your central display system. You can't tell from just looking at that tracing what will be the best and most effective corrective measures. So you go into to your patient's room and you notice that her blood pressure cuff is just cycled and she's hypotensive. Maybe she got her epidural 30 minutes ago. And so that patient, you're probably going to immediately start a fluid bolus. Another patient, you may walk into the room and you've seen late decelerations and you notice that she has tachycystole. And so your first response to that might be decreasing her oxytocin. So my point is just seeing those late decelerations on the screen doesn't provide you with all the information you need to provide the best care. And you need to be at the bedside assessing the entire clinical picture. Yeah, that, that's so true. And, and, and I did notice that you um, didn't mention oxygen. And I know that's kind of a hot topic right now. Do you administer oxygen if you see late decelerations? Well, I think according to, you know, more recent research that we've seen, um, oxygen is best used in cases of maternal hypoxia. And if the mother is not hypoxic, um, other corrective measures such as positioning, fluids, oxytocin management should, should probably be first before we would even think of doing oxygen. Yeah, so if you would put like a pulse, pulse oximeter on the mom, maybe check her pulse ox, check her respirations, um, you know, look at her oxygen status. And let's say her oxygen pulse oximeter is going below 95 or 96, around that range. Then you would think about starting oxygen? Um, certainly consider it, you know, after maybe troubleshooting to see if there's anything else that could be contributing. But yeah, I think that'd be a reasonable thing to do. Okay, awesome. Well, is there any other fetal monitor pattern that really requires critical thinking to manage the tracing uh, the best? Well, yes, and probably there's there's probably a lot, but uh, <laughs> another one that just kind of comes to mind would be um, a sinusoidal pattern versus a, a false or what some people call a pseudo-sinusoidal pattern, and making the decision, um, you know, of, of which one it is, which is very important because a true sinusoidal pattern is, is um, very concerning, typically associated with severe fetal anemia or maybe significant hypoxemia whereas a false or pseudosinusoidal pattern is benign. Is there, is there any kind of clinical characteristics that tell you whether it's a true sinusoidal or a false sinusoidal appearance to a tracing? So the best thing to do would be, again, going to the bedside, 
assessing mom and baby together. So we know that like a false pattern can be associated with narcotic administration. So if you walked into the room, um, you've seen this pattern, you talk to the patient or you, or, you know, maybe because you've already been caring for her that she just received um, medication for pain. So having that knowledge combined with observing the tracing before the medication was given and looking for things like moderate variability or accelerations, um, would lead you to believe that, that certainly this was a false pattern. Uh, other things that you might consider in ruling in or out a true sinusoidal would be um, asking the patient if she's felt her baby move recently, um, asking her about vaginal bleeding, because those things could be associated with fetal anemia as well. Yeah, we were talking about it earlier on a strip that we were looking at together. So I can think of another fetal heart rate pattern that requires critical thinking, and that's with signal ambiguity, which is another hot topic in fetal monitoring. That's a great one. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, signal ambiguity, I've, I've found, even though I feel like we've been trying to teach on it quite a bit in the last few years, there's still a lot of um, professionals in our field around the country that still say they, they had not heard of that phenomenon. And so I think it's a great one for us to bring up. And this is a situation that can occur with external fetal monitoring um, in which the fetal signal is replaced by the maternal signal and usually without any perceptible uh, break or gap in the fetal monitor tracing. It's most commonly observed during second stage labor. Um, and what you'll see is uniform accelerations occurring while the mother is bearing down and pushing. And I think that to um, an untrained eye or someone who hasn't been really oriented to this phenomenon, um, the quick glance, you're very reassured by seeing what you think is an acceleration. We always like to see those with fetal monitoring, but at closer look, you see that it's, that it's really not the the fetal heart rate at all. And I know we've seen that, you know, with a a very surprised team at delivery that they had really low APGARs or, or no APGARs at all. And you had had this fetal strip that had all of these accelerations occurring and and, and that was such a surprise at delivery. I know you've seen uh, uh, cases like that as well. Um, besides the second stage of labor, is there any other time, you know, when you might see signal ambiguity has occurred during labor? So one example that comes to mind um, is, is a, a case scenario I'll describe for you where a patient was laboring Um, and the fetal heart tracing had been, you know, fairly routine, maybe some variable decelerations, but moderate variability, and she's progressing in labor very well, and all of a sudden she has um, a nausea vomiting episode. Her nurse is at the bedside and and does a set of vital signs and notes that she is significantly hypotensive. And so the nurse immediately um, initiated a fluid bolus, and because this patient had an epidural, she did summon um, the anesthesia department to come, and they addressed that and start treating her with medication. Um, So during this time, the fetal monitor strip looks to be stable at about 140 beats per minute. And so you notice as you as you watch a little bit into this process, uh, repeat vital signs were taken, and the mother is still profoundly hypotensive. Um, blood pressure is about 60s over 30s. And so when you stop and think for a minute, what makes sense? Would it make sense for the fetus to remain stable with a normal fetal heart rate without decelerations while the mother is profoundly hypotensive? And with what we know about 
uteroplacental physiology, that just wouldn't happen. Um, but I think that the reason this was missed in this clinical scenario is that they were trusting that technology. Um, the mother was vomiting, the mother was hypotensive, the mother was their focus. And I think the fetus appearing to be stable, you know, they just let that go for just a little bit. And when they, um, you know, eventually started troubleshooting that, realized that they had actually a very bradycardic fetus. Yeah, that's that's too bad. And what do you do if you suspect signal ambiguity? And I know sometimes, you know, it may even be in the OR and you're just prepping and you still have the patient on the fetal monitor um, or you're in the labor room in that scenario that you just mentioned uh, and you may suspect that you have signal ambiguity. What are some of the things that you can do to clarify uh, that it's not maternal heart rate? Because I know there's several things that you can do, and there's not one that's better than the other. But what are some of those things? Well, I think that, that one that most people think first would be putting a pulse oximeter on the mother. And it's nice that you can have that technology, which will also give a continuous um, recording on the monitor strip, and you can compare them visually. And that makes it very simple. I, I'm not negating that at all. And I think that's a great choice. Um, I think, first of all, just being educated about the, the concept and the fact that uniform accelerations during second stage um, is very, very unusual in a fetus. Fetuses typically do not have accelerations in their heart rate while the mother is bearing down and pushing. So just that knowledge of when you see that, that that's unusual and needs to be for you to be troubleshooting it. Um, you can also put a scalp electrode on the fetus if that would be better. You could even just take your hand and palpate the mother's pulse and count. All right. Very simple, doesn't require technology, very quick and easy to do. Yeah, and I, I, I did, and the reason why I brought that up is I don't think there's one perfect, you know, in every scenario you're going to choose which one you do. Uh, I think it's important to also document that you, you know, suspected that and this is what you did to rule it out. And you can rule that out. And, and certainly if a mom's pushing, her heart rate's going to go up, right, while she's pushing. So that would be the reason why you would get those accelerations on the tracing. And that can happen. We've seen that numerous times. So agree. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. I, I, I know we've discussed several fetal monitoring patterns that require critical thinking is there any uh, other scenarios or aspects of obstetric care that that you can give us a scenario about that you've seen critical thinking utilized and and or not utilized and how uh, that really impacts the outcome? So another uh, scenario that comes to mind um, was a, was a case of a patient who was um, postpartum. And so she was a gravita one, um, came in in term labor. She'd had a healthy pregnancy and had a spontaneous vaginal delivery, healthy newborn, great APGARS. Um, I think she had a second degree uh, tear that was repaired. She had a routine recovery and was transferred over to a postpartum unit, you know, a couple of hours later. Everything really very routine in our world. And about 10 or 12 hours after she had been on postpartum, um, the nurse is assessing her and she notes that the patient has um, uh, her nail beds and her toes and her fingers are cyanotic and that she has slow capillary refill. And she notes that her hands and feet are both very cool to touch. And so I think that that would that should spark further assessment. 
Yeah, it's kind of a weird, wild assessment, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's certainly not something that we even think to assess that often on a routine postpartum. But the fact that she did assess that um, and then really didn't assess anything else, I, I think was, was problematic. And a little bit later, the patient was complaining of kind of all over body ache, which again, it's not normal for a patient who's had a very normal vaginal delivery without a complication and a, you know, small repair to hurt all over her body. And again, what would someone who's a critical thinker do? They would gather more information. Um, they would analyze that. They would think. They wouldn't just assume that this patient is normal postpartum and therefore not going to have a problem. And in this particular scenario, this patient ended up um, in septic shock. Wow. Was it group A strep in that scenario? It was, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that is such a weird uh, presentation and really varies depending on each scenario. So, you know, one thing that I, I like to do if I have a question about my assessment at that time is to really is just get another nurse in there to come in and, you know, I may say, Susan, can you come to my bedside and help me critically think through this? And I think that we need to promote that kind of, um, to, you know, getting somebody else to come in and then uh, calling the provider and saying, hey, we need you to come in and assess this patient because those symptoms are certainly abnormal. And that particular scenario can, like I said, can present in such a, you know, different way in each patient, and especially in the postpartum period. So that's a great that's a great scenario. Thanks for bringing that up. So, well, I, I, this was all very helpful. I really appreciate you coming in and, and talking with me today and talking with all of us about critical thinking. So I want to thank Susan Drummond for um, joining us today uh, for the discussion. And I hope you join us in our next discussion or our next podcast, um, which you can download from any, any of your locations where you normally get your podcasts, Buzzsprout, Um, is our host and we thank you so much for joining us today this podcast and music was produced by austin bear are you looking to create a podcast please reach out to nashville podcast at gmail.com once again that is nashville podcast at gmail.com.